Hi, I'm Michelle. <laughs> and I'm swallowing. Um, <laughs> I'll give you a moment. Uh, yeah, sorry yeah. about that. Okay. <laughs> Do you want to just say you're Michelle again? <laughs> oh, sure. Throw me back in there. Sorry. I've already said my bit. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Welcome back to the Modern Lady Podcast. You're listening to episode 102. Hi, I'm Michelle. And I'm Lindsay. And today we are talking about the dignity of labor. St. Francis de Sales once said, quote, Every moment comes to us pregnant with a command from God, only to pass on and plunge into eternity, there to remain forever what we have made it. End quote. Well, when put like that, our perspectives on the duty of the moment and the importance of our work certainly takes on much more gravitas. Our culture has confused much of what is true about work today, and the reality is that recognizing the dignity of our labor is one of the most beautiful ways that we can elevate and sanctify our lives. But first, this podcast is brought to you by our Patreon supporters. How about you? Do you want more from The Modern Lady? Become a Patreon supporter, and for just $5 a month, you will have exclusive access to our sister podcast, The Friday Finishing School. Find us by going to patreon.com forward slash The Modern Lady Podcast. Another way that you can support this show is by subscribing to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts so that you never miss an episode. We are also so thankful for every rating, review, and comment you leave us. Your reviews on iTunes help new listeners discover us. This week's shout out goes to our many friends online who have so graciously shared the podcast and our episodes on their pages, Instagram stories, and feeds. We are so grateful that you would take the time to spread the word and help us grow in this way. In particular, we would like to thank some of our recent sharers from the past few months, like Caitlin, aka Mrs. Midwest, uh, Paige Ryan, Claire from Vox Clara Family, Mrs. Anna H. Conwell, Jen Rose Baker, Athena Weston Davies, and many others for sharing us on their Insta stories. Thank you so much, ladies, for your friendship and your support. Your encouragement truly means so much to us. And if you would like to leave us a comment, you can do so on our website, www.themodernlady1950.wordpress.com, or you can leave us a comment on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube, where you can find us at The Modern Lady Podcast. But before we get into today's chat, Lindsay has our Modern Lady Tip of the Week. Last week, we started to explore the history of the handshake and women. I started researching this topic when I was watching a show set in World War II, and I noticed that when introduced, men shook hands and the ladies did not. We learned last week that women did shake hands in Victorian times, albeit with some rules attached, like women can shake the hands of elderly and distinguished men and the women that were standing close to them. Today we will look at the mechanics of handshaking for women. You might recall that Emily Post said that no one wants to shake the hands of a mini boiled pudding, so how does a lady properly shake hands? I'm looking again at the website MimiMatthews.com and she references several etiquette books from the Victorian period. First, in England, it is the right hand that is extended. Interestingly, in France, they extend the left hand as it is nearest to the heart. 
In the Regency era, the arm was lifted high when offering the hand. By the end of the 19th century, just the hand was offered, with a more moderate style of handshake being the fashion of the day. There is a bit of debate raging about whether a lady was to offer her entire hand or just the fingers. In an 1898 book called Manners and Rules for Good Society, it said that the fingers are held and gently shaken and that the palm is not to be grasped or touched. But another publication called The Delineator advised grasping the entire hand. Victorian author Eliza Duffy wrote, quote, A lady who has only two fingers to give in handshaking had better keep them to herself. Either way, the Victorians were all agreed that the shaking must be firm and that after the initial grasp, a slight and momentary pressure should be applied to the hand. They believed that a weak handshake indicated that someone couldn't be relied upon in an emergency. Another thing that the Victorians had strong feelings about was the temperature of someone's hand. And should a man remove his glove before shaking a lady's hand? Well, not if he suspects that his hand is clammy under his glove. If it is, then the glove remains on. According to Matthews, quote, warm, clammy hands were anathema to the Victorians. Multiple etiquette sources advised their readers to make sure that their hands were at the proper temperature before shaking hands. The 1854 book Hints on Etiquette and the Usages of Society said, quote, Never indeed offer your hand unless assured that it is the in a presentable state of frigidity, for the touch of a tepid hand chills the warmest feelings. So in conclusion, we need cold hands and a firm grasp, regardless if you extend your fingers or if you are daring enough to allow someone to make contact with your palm. Wow, I never thought I should have anxiety over my handshake before, but now I think I do. For example, how does one regulate their hand temperature? I don't, like, I don't know. I, I don't know either. And these are now the questions that are going to be running through my head if I ever meet any of you good people in person. <laughs> My hand's too warm. My hand's too warm. Yeah. It's like, because it says, I think it's supposed to be uh, frigid. Like, it's not even supposed to be warm. Like, cool those hands right down. In modern culture, talk about work has become somewhat synonymous with drudgery, dullness, and a back-breaking grind. And with that kind of perspective, it's no wonder we often seek to avoid and escape it. But this mentality is really missing the mark when it comes to the dignity of labor, and adjusting the lens through which we see our work really has the potential to transform our lives, right, Lindsay? Yeah, so work. Um, I guess I would venture to say that the concept of work hasn't been this transformed in decades. I mean, we can look back and maybe when a bunch of women entered the workforce and then, you know, during the war and, and different periods, we're in the middle of one of those right now. Over this last year, we've seen more people working from home than ever before. And this mm -hmm. alone should give us great pause. Many companies are wondering if it's even necessary that their employees return to an actual office or if they can save money, right, on rents and that kind of thing and just continue having their staff working from home. This in turn has other repercussions and I'm reading about empty office spaces all over the place. This is also affecting our real estate market um, and people, you know, mm. being able to move away from the cities that were more expensive into other areas. It, it, so there's this huge economic impact of this thing that we're in the middle of right now. 
And then there are people who haven't been so, quote, lucky, right, who haven't Mm -hmm. not only not worked from home, but have lost their jobs. Uh, I did a quick Google search. And since January 25th, or I guess up until January 25th of this year, there have been worldwide 225 million jobs lost since (gasps) last year. Mm -hmm. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Now, on the flip side, I have many friends who have had their husbands home (laughs) for the entire year and they Mm -hmm. love it. And they have, you know, really realized the blessing uh, of what it is to have their whole family at home. Now, I'm not saying it's easy. (laughs) It's really complicated. So for their husbands to try to work with children underfoot and and all that stuff. Um, But they've all told me overall that they're really thankful and that they're actually hoping that life doesn't go back to how it was before. So mm. work, work this past year, I think we're, again, living through history. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it will be interesting to see that on the other side of all of this, l- let's just maybe put ourselves like forward another 10 years or something. <laughs> yes. What is the work landscape going to look like? Yeah. And what I find really interesting is that a lot of these questions and a lot of these shifts um, simply because of time constraints and the the how quickly everything kind of devolved <laughs> from up until January, a, a lot of the considerations up till now have been a little bit more economic focus, like what you were saying about per- perhaps saving money on real estate when it comes to empty office buildings and having people continue work from home. But I I do see more and more these questions, like your initial point of what does that mean for the person working? Like, where does that kind of put us as the workforce? And how do we see our work? Is it something that we just do um, to earn a paycheck? Where does the paycheck fit in? Um, Does it mean something more to us? And is the way that we're working contribute or detract from that? Yeah. And this takes me back again and again and again to our leisure episode. Yeah. Um, Even I forget if we recorded that in the midst of COVID, but regardless, um, leading up to that before even this COVID situation, there was a lot of talk on people being overworked right from the 1980s and that like push for like Mm -hmm. working workaholics um working so hard and then over the last decade or so we've seen people yeah really uh renegotiating their working life and trying to find strike that balance right and so we really Mm -hmm. looked into that with leisure but like whether you're working for an outside employer like outside of your home or you're working for an outside employer inside of your home or -hmm. you're just doing housework the unpaid daily job of countless women and men work is unavoidable It's often groaned about and it's viewed as something to just endure until your next vacation and until retirement. And Mm -hmm. it's, you're right. Like if we just shift our focus completely to the dignity of labor, which we will obviously discuss as this episode continues on, but it really can change that. And I feel like the other thing, so we're looking at what's happening economically right now and in the job market, but we're also having to start to project forward about what our children, like what kind of jobs are they going Mm. to have? What is it going to look like when things settle down in five years from now, 10 years from now? So it really is something that, like I said, working is unavoidable, but also trying to talk about work is unavoidable because it really, we're in a great period of transition. Mm -hmm. And um, you know what, looking into 
this dignity of labor, we start to realize that it's very natural for us to be so preoccupied with mm. what work is and what it means to us, right? Mm-hmm. It's a long storied history, I guess I should mm. say, between us and work, right? Yes. <laughs> it goes way, we go way back, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So in preparation for this episode, I know we both looked into some of the history. Um, I started learning about the medieval merchant guilds and craft guilds, and I learned that that aside from the land-bound serfs, right, so serfdom, Mm. as we all learned about in grade 10 history, um, (laughs) most townspeople throughout the Middle Ages were actually free. They were quite free. And the majority of them had the chance to enter one of these guilds, and they would start as apprentice. They would work their way up to journeymen. And if they were, you know, really good at what they did, they would become a master of their trade. And things started to change rapidly, though, in the 14th century as the craft guilds started splintering off. So, for example, there were carpenters and the carpenters at that time would build houses and furniture. Well, then people mm-hmm. wanted to specialize in furniture. So then they became joiners. Right. And so in each of the trades, you can see like specialization. But then what this did is this create it opened up the economy. It got a lot more people doing a lot more jobs. And this had benefits and it had um, some issues, too. It really changed the price structure and profits. And one of the downfalls of that is that the masters didn't want to apprentice people through because it cost more. They just started paying Mm. men, we'll say men at this time, a working wage. The whole idea of you're not transitioning through the steps to get more skilled. We're just going to pay you a working wage to do the job you're doing. Just one task, like one specialized task. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. And that took us into the industrial revolution. And this was um, this idea of learning a skilled trade and, and becoming a master in it. For the most part, this just went all out the window and developed nations saw the horrors that can be unleashed with massive factories and men and women and children working when there was no type of legal protection for them or workplace standards. It, it was an awful time uh, mm. for the majority of people. It was no longer noble. And the majority started working incredibly long hours at very dangerous jobs. And yeah, they didn't have the chance to grow in skills and their jobs really lost that that dignity. Now, the Catholic Church spoke out against this in a papal encyclical by Pope Leo XIII in 1891 called The Condition of the Working Class, in which he described the working situation as, quote, misery and wretchedness pressing so heavily and unjustly at this moment on the vast majority of the working classes. Now he went on to praise the God-given rights of everyone to reap the benefits of their hard work, the importance of skilled labor, and the right for every man to work hard and to provide a safe home for his family and food on his table, to put food on his table. He talked about working before we fell from our state of innocence, and we'll get into this in a little bit more, but he went on to say um, that before the fall, it was our free choice to work, and it, it was meant to be done in delight. Pope Leo mm. XIII goes on to say, um, quote, that labor is not a thing to be ashamed of, that it is an honorable calling, enabling a man to sustain his life in a way that is upright and credible. So all of this to say the history of labor and even the current job situation is complicated and we get that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's really interesting, like even way, way back with the apprentices and what happened then, you can see a shift in the motive behind work, mm-hmm. right? Um, how at one point, 
for sure, it would have been a way to earn uh, a living and to support a family. Uh, but it was more of it did have more of that feel of sustaining and fulfilling a purpose yeah. and of excelling, like of having something in your life that you consistently worked on to excel in. And then that was your contribution to the wider society since no one person was the master of all trades. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. Yeah. And how. Yeah. And how with specialization, with perhaps an increased demand um, for products and services, there was no longer the time afforded to be to be able to focus like that on work anymore. Then it shifted more and more over the years. And we see through the Industrial Revolution where production and the speed of production Mm -hmm. started to take precedence over uh, what used to be, like what you said, a noble and dignified lifestyle as opposed to simply just your job. Absolutely. So -hmm. while the nature of work changes constantly alongside the rights and responsibilities of the worker and employer, one thing does remain, and, and that is our interior disposition to work itself, how we view the task at hand. And this, this is independent of the job we are doing, our title, and whether we are being paid or not, or who's watching us. So I was just pondering these questions, like, and we should ask ourselves these things. How do I view work? How do I handle the job in front of me when no one is watching me? Do I understand that there is dignity in work even when there aren't any external rewards? Do I understand that my work is valuable even when it's unpaid? Mm -hmm. So get this, God works. And we know this from the very beginning of Genesis. Mm. See, I always thought that work was part of our quote, punishment resulting from original sin. But when I mentioned this to my husband, Jason, um, you know, that we, you and I were going to do this topic, he was quick to explain to me that work was part of God's original plan for humanity before the fall. And it seems so obvious now, but I never really yeah. stopped and contemplated this before. <laughs> God worked and he rested and he commanded Adam and Eve to name the animals and to work in the garden. So let's go back to the naming of the animals part. Why was this important? Well, God gave us dominion over creation. God had work in mind when he created this world and the people within it. He knew that through work, we could take care of his creation. And then when we take care of something, we understand its value. And when we see the value in all things, we appreciate everything more. When we see things in this manner, we also understand our place in creation. Okay, so what's different with work now after the fall and the work ordained by God in the garden? Well, our work now is stressful, arduous, and it can seem like it's just not productive, like we are faceless robots, like we are just running in circles, like life is just a rat race and we work until we die. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's such a good point. And I love looking at these examples of God himself showing us work mm-hmm. <laughs> and that it was always meant to be. Because if you think about it, for most of his life, Jesus himself worked, yes. right? Like as a carpenter, yes. he, he would have had a work day and like clients. And yeah, he was one of those, what are the furniture people? What yeah, is, he was a joiner. A joiner. Before, but those were until the 14th. So he was a pre-joiner. Right. Oh, okay. yeah, he, was a, he was a carpenter, as we know. Yeah. <laughs> God is outside of time. He, <laughs> he was living in the 14th century already. Yeah. <laughs> but the, 
that was um, that was his work in the moment. Yeah. And then when he started his public ministry, that was a different kind of work. But we see through the life of Jesus that both of those kinds of work held for him the same weight and seriousness and worth and yeah. dignity, right? To do it and to do it well. I can't imagine Jesus not doing even any of those hidden work tasks not well. <laughs> right. And he was formed by Joseph, right? St. Joseph, the worker. It's one of his titles. And Joseph is a descendant from the King, um, King David. Like he is a princely line and yet he worked. And, and, you know, Jesus was given to St. Joseph to be raised, to be formed uh, as his apprentice. Yeah. To learn, Mm -hmm. to work with his hands. Yes. And actually a really interesting point about St. Joseph and that feast day you mentioned, St. Joseph, the worker. Mm -hmm. That feast day is on May 1st. So Mm. by the time this airs, that will have been this past Saturday, Mm -hmm. is the Feast of St. Joseph the Worker. There is already another feast day of St. Joseph, which is March 19th, right? But this feast day was established in 1955 by Pope Pius XII, and it was in direct response to the more communist and socialist backing of the time to celebrating May Day, which tended to glorify the work itself and at the expense of the worker. And so actually May Day became, a, which is May 1st, became a really big holiday in a lot of communist and socialist countries. And it was Pope Pius Twelfth who established the feast day of St. Joseph, the worker, to affirm the dignity of work itself and the rights of all workers. And so I just thought that was a super cool um, connection. And throughout history, as you, as you have been saying, and through this example, of the church's keen interest and focus on what we know biblically to be true right from the beginning to Genesis Mm -hmm. about the truth of work and labor. And just one other point about how we see work that that you brought up, I wanted to bring this up as a possible solution maybe to languishing, Mm. um, which we talked about last week, right? Because Mm -hmm. I checked back to the meme that we referenced that defined languishing, and we see words in that definition of that meme anyways, words like blah or void or dull. And that got me to make the connection of that's how we often talk about work. Yeah. And perhaps we slip into this from time to time. I certainly have, I know. Um, But we can't stay there. We can't allow ourselves to stay languishing, right? And so beside happy hormones, (laughs) yes, (laughs) perhaps my thinking is that in regards to changing this languishing mindset, when we find ourselves there and in danger of feeling defeated by our circumstances or maybe even the circumstances beyond our control in the world, Perhaps the thing that we need to wake us up from languishing will first come in the rolling up of our sleeves. Mm. Yes, Michelle. (laughs) I I never saw this as the antidote as well to languishing. And you're so right. (laughs) That is a great. So, yep, you can do the hormone things we suggested in the last episode. And then you can scrub your floors. We think you should do both. Um, (laughs) And that we should also do both, which I need to do. That's right. I've eaten all my chocolate and now I guess it's time to scrub my floors. (laughs) Yes. So 
these things, the way that you just described work, right? Blah. Mm-hmm. Um, just like this being like a cog in the wheel of a faceless, nameless company, all these things. As we're saying, this is not what God intended work to be. And we know this because the prophet Isaiah talks about what the world will be like when God returns. He wrote that nations will, quote, beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Now, I think our natural mm-hmm. inclination when reading that is to celebrate that we will be a peaceful nation, that we will no longer uh, need swords, but we might miss what those swords will be transformed into. They will become tools to work the land. So a nation at peace is a nation that works, work that is noble and productive, pleasing both to man and God. Oh my goodness. I love that dual connection. Yes. And I was looking into as well, like what is it intrinsically about work that makes it a good thing? And A lot of Catholic theology points to the fact that God created us to work um, because as creations being created in his image, we were meant to share in that work that God himself does, right? We are invited to participate in the work of the creator himself. And so this gives so much nobleness, this ability to create things, to make them with our hands, with our minds. Um, other things that we're able to use and to uplift the lives of other people in our community. That's what God does. And he invites us to participate in that. And that is what elevates work um, in dignity. And the reason why it's so important to us to be able to do it and to have outlets for it and to do it well and nobly in our everyday lives, no matter where we find ourselves. Yes. So that's what we mean when we say that God ordained work. So perhaps, you know, God maybe understands better than we do the importance Mm. of a job well done. Yeah, yeah, that's right. He he said it was good Mm -hmm. and it was good. (laughs) Okay. So now you and I are each going to talk about uh, a different man and his views on work. You are going to talk about a saint and I'm going to talk about an American TV host. So we'll start with the saint. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So uh, this particular saint is Saint Jose Maria Escriva, Mm -hmm. and he is the founder of Opus Dei, which is um, a work in the or an apostolate of the Catholic Church. Uh, It stands for the work of God. So the whole idea behind Opus Dei in the movement is that people can find God right in the middle of their everyday lives and through their work. Now, a little bit about him in particular, he became a priest in Spain in the 1920s, and he endured as a priest the Spanish Civil War um, during huge persecution of Catholics. It was intense and it was brutal. Um, Many priests and nuns were murdered during those years, and St. Jose Maria managed to hide well enough from the authorities to escape being caught while he was still ministering to many people as a priest. And this often did put him at great danger um, and pose a great threat to his life. So, you know, in a side note, if you want to learn a little bit more about that, there is actually a really good movie that came out in 2011 called There Be Dragons. And it is inspired by the life of Jose Maria Escriva during the Spanish Civil War. So you can check it out. I really recommend it. I really enjoyed it, um, that movie. But this work, Opus Dei, the work of God, um, like I said, it's the belief that every single thing that we do here on this earth can lead to our sanctification and the sanctification of others. St. Jose Maria talks about how we're to do every task, no matter what it is, 
well because God deserves our best. And if we love God, we will offer him the very best work that we can do. So what I like about it is it's this relationship always, right? Like the work is done in the context of relationship once again with God and then in service of other people. He also speaks a lot about how work is prayer and how it affirms the dignity of the person because it's involving a person, like I was saying, in the activity of our creator that is to work and to make things. And the last point that I'll say, I actually had a bit of a challenge summing up St. Jose Maria Escriva and all that he says about work because there is so, so much that he talks about how we can um, sanctify our everyday lives. I think he's the saint of these times and this current mood of work (laughs) in our Mm -hmm. culture. But being such a modern saint, you can find a lot of video footage of St. Jose Maria Escriva on YouTube. Mm -hmm. He speaks Spanish, so you're going to have to read captions, but you can actually hear a saint speak. And especially for those of us who are really striving to have a deep understanding of how meritorious our work can be, I think that listening to and reading up on what St. Jose Maria Escriva has to say about the work of God and the work that all of us have and the dignity of labor is would be greatly, greatly edifying and would certainly boost and elevate our efforts here while we're on earth. Yeah, we are huge St. Jose Maria fans in our house, as you know. Um, We've watched many of the videos. And um, (laughs) he also has interceded for me. And I've had two miraculous experiences with kidney stones disappearing, thanks to St. Jose Maria's Mm. intercession. Um, And, you know, he's just a remarkable saint. Now, the thing with his books, The Furrow, The Forge, The Way, they're all pocket-sized. And they're meant to be carried in your pocket or in your purse at work. And they're also very much like St. Francis de Sales, broken down into very small manageable chunks. I'm talking a few sentences. That's Mm -hmm. In his work, every single sentence you read, your mind is blown. Like, you honestly read the one little thing (laughs) and you close it and you're like, and that's enough for today. Like, it's just little nuggets of pure gold so yeah I absolutely love him and do you know what else about that so when you brought up his books that's awesome because that's exactly what I've been reading a little bit in the mornings Mm -hmm. um right after maybe some scripture and some prayer time because specifically because those little bite-sized nuggets from Saint Jose Maria he has the kind of temperament where I feel like in real life, he had no time for my particular brand (laughs) of dramatic languishing. (laughs) So he really is the type of saint who is going to, you can almost envision him saying to you like, what are you, what are you sitting here for? We have work to do. Let's go. Let's do it. We have important jobs to do. And that's just the motivation I need to get up off the couch and get my day started. (laughs) And it helps in my house that my husband can imitate his voice perfectly with the Spanish accent. So as you know, he <laughs> pretends he is St. Jose Maria um, yes. saying those things to us all the time. <laughs> and it is hilarious and awesome. So yeah, now I guess on it's not the flip side, but a totally different representation of the work is mm-hmm. Mike Rowe. So if you say the name Mike Rowe, you may have to remind people um, of 
that guy from that show, Dirty Jobs. And I was just going like, to say, right? Dirty yeah. Jobs, right? Yeah. Dirty Jobs, Dirty <laughs> Jobs. And they'll be like, oh, the guy who's like climbs into the sewers and stuff. And you're like, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Most people, as soon as they recognize the name, they will realize and re- recall that he is one of the biggest advocates for trades and, you know, jobs and skilled labor in the U.S. and in Canada. And he often speaks about those old platitudes of follow your dreams, follow your passions, find a job that you love Mm -hmm. and you'll never have to work a day in your life. And he says, phooey, his main message (laughs) is decide what job makes sense based on your skills and the work available where you live and work your butt off. And then maybe just maybe you'll become passionate about it. Now, those are my words. He's much more engaging Mm -hmm. to listen to he's got podcasts and he's very active on social media um he's and he does a lot of like um convocation speeches at universities which is hilarious when you consider how he feels about post-secondary education but he's great so Roe says that most teenagers are coached to consider what job they will find the most satisfaction in. Then they go to school for that job and they graduate with mountains of debt and then they try to get a job in that field. And well, statistics say that for most people, it doesn't turn out that way. Sadly, students are told that if they spend the money on their education, the job that they are so passionate about will fall right into their lap. But the job market is changing so rapidly, as we've talked about. Um, So many of the jobs that people are being educated for right now aren't even jobs anymore. And it's, you know, Mm. and who knows if they will be in a couple of years. So the truth is, and many entrepreneurs and successful business people say, all say the same thing, um, that the thing that you might be passionate about might actually not be realistic. So micro reminds people to keep their minds open, to look for opportunities in places that you might not have ever expected. He said that most of the people he interviewed on Dirty Jobs didn't start out passionate about their jobs, but they were committed to being the best at whatever it was that they were doing. And then the love of the job followed. Mm. Is it guaranteed? Mm. No, nothing is guaranteed. But there is something to be said about recognizing that there is dignity in all work and that by keeping your mind open, you recognize that all work has the potential to become something that you're passionate about. Now, He said there are, and this is a quote, there are an awful lot of people who are doing important work that no one pays attention to. And he said that there are actually right now 5.8 million jobs available in the United States that fall within the, Mm. he calls it the skills gap. These jobs are just sitting there. And he talks to about like generalized work versus specialized work. So like a farmer needs to be skilled enough to do many different jobs, right? Versus Mm -hmm. specialized work training. And he also gets into talks about automation versus globalization. But the main thing I walked away from studying Mike Rowe and what he has to say is that when you have the ability to complete a task, and and he said that sadly, this isn't something worked into most current jobs, your desk always stays full, ultimately. But if you have Mm -hmm. a job, so like what you and I have as homemakers, um, if you have the ability to actually set and complete a task, that results in job satisfaction, and that results in dignity in your job and in that field. Mm hmm. Well, it gives you dopamine mm-hmm. yes. <laughs> to be able to accomplish a task, right? Yes. It's it's biological as well as psychological. Um, and I love that connection. And I also really love that it's not the work that dignifies us. We are given our dignity by our identity of who we are in God, right? Mm-hmm. It's not the job itself that gives you worth. Um 
And so that's what I see Mike Rowe kind of talking about, right? Whatever it is, do that job with a level of dignity that elevates it up. And Jose Maria, I feel like he and St. Jose Maria would get along so well because Jose Maria, I have in my notes here, he has a quote that says, which is better, manual or intellectual work? Well, whichever is done more for love of God, end quote. Yeah, so it's not about what the job is because you know what you could have a really high paying job but be very corrupt and really misuse the responsibilities in your position and then is that more dignified than the jobs like Mike Rowe said that maybe no one is paying attention to that isn't quite so prestigious we'll say um no it's the level of intention and masterful um concern for doing a good job. That is what gives work dignity. So this led me into looking into the words meaningful work. Mm -hmm. And I thought this was really, really uh, interesting. Micro asked this question, can you imagine the world without this job? And then think about how would the world work without that job? That then automatically implies that it is meaningful work, whatever it is. What about my job? Home with my children. What about your job? What about my husband's job? Um, This really stopped me in my tracks to consider what meaningful work is. So I looked into it a little further on on a website called (laughs) yonder.com. It's an employment website and they listed five questions about what makes work meaningful. And I thought we'd just go over these quickly. Mm -hmm. Um, So the first one says, is it work that uses your talents and skills to your maximum potential? Number two, jobs that make you feel a part of something bigger. Number three, knowing your contribution means something. Number four, experiencing balance between your work and personal life. Number five, having control over your work project. So up until now, I think we've talked a lot about jobs that are outside of the home, but now I want to look at homemaking. I 100% believe that those same questions that I just read can be applied to homemaking. So I think that if you don't see homemaking as a job, then that's because you don't see homemaking as a job. Mm. Um, So what you might, you know, maybe have picked up on there or maybe not is that I really emphasize that second you. See, I think of homemaking as a job Mm -hmm. and sure it's a vocation and right by vocation, we mean a life choice that we feel called to by God that has within it all of the opportunities necessary for us to grow in holiness. Um, But it's more than that. Well, okay, actually strike that. Nothing is more than our vocation. So I guess it's less than that. (laughs) But (laughs) homemaking is a duty. It's a it is a job and it's a really hard job. Mm -hmm. It is really hard to be passionate about it. Sometimes it's really hard to finish it for the day because it's ongoing. It's really hard to keep doing the same thing over and over again without recognition and opportunities for advancement. And these things can and do bog us down and they will, if we allow them to strip us of our own ability to see our worth and the value of our skilled labor So yeah, do I see homemaking as a job? I sure do. Mm -hmm. And you know what? That's a really good point. I as well think of it as a as a job. And that's why we want to do it well, I think. Um, It was an interesting thought exercise for myself to just wonder about the meticulousness that I have in my duties. Uh, Not so much in terms of perfectionism at home and in homemaking. But I have to be honest, a lot of the time, I feel like I'm in this whirlwind of duty, right? And it just kind of results in Mm -hmm. just throwing things into place just to get things done. 
Uh, I think that's that might be where the tediousness comes in, ironically, because it does it doesn't end, but it's too quick. I don't stop and recognize often or remind myself often of the dignity of this particular job at home. But I think it was you, uh, Lindsay, who spoke at one point about slowing down our actions in one of our Mm -hmm. episodes. Um, I think it was during doing the dishes (laughs) in particular. (laughs) Yeah. And I wonder if this is one way that we can help ourselves reconnect with this dignity of uh, that our work has by slowing down and by being very aware and present to the quality of the job that we're doing and the desire to do it well. And if we do that, how might it elevate how we see the dignity of our work in the home day after day? Yes, I had a funny little brief private message uh, encounter with Lauren at the Catholic Commons on Instagram this morning because she talked about um, making sure that you just start your day by unloading your dishwasher, that it can really set the tone. And I wrote to her, so proud of my speed. Um, I'm like, I can get my dishwasher unloaded while my kid's Eggo waffles are in. I talk about this a lot actually on Instagram. And she's like, wow, you're fast. And I'm like, yeah, I'm a bull in a china shop. I'm often chipping the plates as I'm throwing them in the cupboard. I can do it fast, right? But Mm. should I be doing it fast? And I, it's funny you brought that up because I reflected again about that in my own duties and how I, how I do that this morning. I was so inspired by, Mm -hmm. you know, a priest friend of ours, Father Merkley, watching him during the mass and how slow and just the way he performed these little tasks of cleaning out the chalice and, and, you know, mm. draping everything with the veil again, it was just so controlled and just, it, it lended dignity <laughs> to the task at hand. Mm-hmm. And I was so inspired by that. Um, you know, some women grew up that we know, especially women in Christian and Catholic circles grew up wanting to be wives and mothers and homemakers. And I'm seeing that actually more and more in the next couple generations that they are desiring that. And that is wonderful and good. And I'm so glad that women are seeing that as uh, something that they can work towards because that was not the message the last couple generations. Mm-hmm. But you might have been like me and that wasn't your dream and you weren't passionate about it. And it, through circumstances in life, you ended up being at home. I'm kind of like the people that Mike Rowe was talking about. It wasn't something I sought out. But when I ended up being at home, I knew from the beginning that I wanted to be the best at being at home that I could be. Mm-hmm. And then I fell in love with it. And I fell in love with it so much that my handle on Instagram is at Lindsay homemaker. Right. And I talk about homemaking yeah. all the time. Right. So it was not what I dreamed of doing. It was never what I envisioned for my life. It wasn't even like 10th on my list. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, I knew right away that it was important work and I wanted to give it my all the, to the best of my ability, depending on my season in life. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think what helps with that is just the motivation of love and service to other people. Mm-hmm. Because even St. Teresa of Calcutta, Mother Teresa, says to wash the dishes, not because it is dirty, nor because you are told to wash it, but because you love the person who will use it next. Mm -hmm. And I can even see that when you were even talking about Mike Rowe, I was even thinking the same thing. Essentially, all those jobs that people kind of gloss over, that other, that the workers end up really loving that he speaks to on his show I think what the undercurrent for all these people and for us at home, for anyone who f- who finds that pearl of dignity and and of merit in their work, I think that the underlying current is service and love of others. You want to perform a task that's going to uplift someone else in your community, in your family, 
or society as a whole, you have found the merit of your work in that piece of the puzzle. Father Bernard O'Reilly wrote about the dignity of labor in 1893, imploring mothers to instill within their children the habits of cleanliness, order, industry, self-respect, and self-reliance. He also wrote, quote, recall to them frequently that the most glorious names in heaven or on earth were those of men and women whose daily life was one of toil like your own. He explained that we can be joyous while also being industrious, that we can be cheerful while learning something new each day and while finishing tasks that we have set for ourselves. It doesn't matter what your job is. What matters is how you view your work. I had a quote hanging in our homeschool room that was as much for me as it was for our children. (laughs) Thomas Edison famously said, opportunity is missed by most people because it is dressed in overalls and looks like work. You might see a floor that needs to be washed or beds that need to be made or clothing that needs to be ironed, but it is so much more than that. Look for heaven beyond the floors and walls of our houses and our offices. Look for opportunities to do just that little bit better than you did yesterday, seeking to make yourself proud. Look for ways to encourage joyful industry within your children so that they may learn early on that the small tasks of everyday life are the building blocks of a nation, that no job is too small when done with love. We aren't romanticizing work. We are recognizing the dignity of labor and the shift of perspective has the potential to change everything. Okay, it's time for our What We're Loving This Week segment of the show. So Lindsay, what have you been loving this week? So listener Sylvia messaged me on Instagram and told me about a podcast that she was loving and that she thought it might interest you and I, and I was supposed to pass it along to you, but I decided to start listening to it first so I could surprise you with it here because it is actually (laughs) so good and I'm so glad she messaged me about it. Okay. So it is called The Duchess Podcast. Have you seen this yet? No, I haven't. It's hosted by Emma Manor. She's the Duchess of Rutland. She travels around England visiting her other Duchess friends <laughs> all throughout <laughs> England and uh, interviews them in their great homes. Now, um, they talk about the historical significance of these homes and the roles that women, I guess homemakers, um, have played in these homes that have been um, so important to the preservation of these national treasures, essentially. What I find particularly mm. interesting is that because these are so mostly privately owned castles and country houses and manors. They aren't operated by the National Trust, or at least the ones I've listened to so far. So you really get to be taken kind of behind the curtain by how these houses are run, including like how much money it costs every month, even if the house is just, I think they say standing still or something where it's like nobody's touching anything. So anyways, it's everything I love, everything you love. It's British history, the aristocracy, home design, and just again, the stories of how women have shaped their communities and their countries at large from within these homes. And we believe that to be important regardless of a home's size. Hmm. Well, I mean, you had me at this duchess goes to visit her duchess friends. (laughs) (laughs) I can be a part of that in any way I am in. Sign me up. Um, But yeah, what a great example of what we talk about on the podcast, but even of this episode too, that like it's across the board, no matter what your station in life, Mm -hmm. all of these ideas of home and work in the home and making a home, it is um, across the board. It includes everyone. So Michelle, what have you been loving this week? 
So I'm going to recommend another Saks Family movie night success. <laughs> and that is the Swiss Family Robinson oh, movie yeah. on Disney Plus from 1960. Um this has been on mine and my kids' to-watch list for movie night for a while now, ever since we discovered a cute animated TV series of The Swiss Family Robinson mm-hmm. on Amazon Prime. Um, but we kept getting distracted by other movies, um, equally awesome movies. And so finally, last Friday night was the time to finally put on this version, and we were enthralled. So the movie is based on the popular classic novel of the same name, and it follows a family who are shipwrecked on an undiscovered island on their way to a new life in New Guinea. Now they have to use their wits, their strength, and creativity to survive and create some sort of life on the island while they wait to be rescued. So I was actually pretty skeptical that my kids would make it through the whole two hours without being distracted or losing interest. But all of them, and especially the boys, were totally captivated the whole time. And I guess, uh, reflecting back, I mean, tree houses, wild animals, (laughs) pirates, what more could you possibly want, right? Yeah. (laughs) So uh, if you're looking for a fun adventure to go on on your next movie night, family or otherwise... I'd recommend that you look up the 1960s version of Swiss Family Robinson. And like I mentioned before, you can find it streaming right now on Disney+. And I love the marriage between the husband and wife. And obviously, they have the coolest treehouse in the history of cool treehouses. It is remarkable Uh, what they saved off that boat. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Like the pipe organ made it. (laughs) Let's be real. (laughs) Right? My very favorite thing was when they first landed on the shore so they'd just been like washed in Mm -hmm. by the surf and the father and sons go okay first we need shelter you know whatever and and the mother says that's not the first thing we do and she got on her (gasps) knees to pray yep Mm -hmm. i love that and i just want to know what that family did like for work (laughs) like where they came from to be able to just like throw up a tree house like that and like the sons and everything they're all such capable people Um, to build a skylight in your bedroom Mm -hmm. out of bamboo and reeds. I mean, yeah, um, there's something lacking in my formal education that I need to go back and correct. (laughs) Okay, that's going to do it for us this week. If you want to get in touch and chat with us about our topic today, you can find us on our website, www.themodernlady1950.wordpress.com or leave us a comment on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at The Modern Lady Podcast. I'm Michelle Sachs, and you can find me on Instagram at mmsachs. And I'm Lindsay Murray, and you can find me on Instagram at lindsayhomemaker. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great week, and we will see you next time. Mm-hmm.